Does anybody know, tomorrow's, uh, tomorrow's Halloween, right? Does anybody, does anybody know what else tomorrow is? Reformation Day, all right, Reformation Day. So when you're on Facebook tomorrow and you see all these things about Halloween, remember that 499 years ago tomorrow, Martin Luther probably unknowingly started the Reformation. And we are all, Protestants are all the beneficiaries of that, where the gospel was recovered, that we can be saved by simple faith in Jesus Christ, by God's gracious faith. So tomorrow's Reformation, I just thought I'd put a plug in for that, okay? So tomorrow, remember and thank God, we should thank God for things like that, shouldn't we? That God had, God had that in mind, God ordained that Martin Luther, this unassuming, not unassuming, but this monk would be converted and, um, and light would come into the world. Uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you can follow along in your bulletin on the back. I'm going to read the, the same verses as last, that were taught on last Sunday, but I'm going to focus on, read focus primarily on verses 11 and 12, and I'm going to focus primarily on verses 13 to 17, but want to touch on how verse 11 especially ties into that. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 17 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, open up your word this morning, I pray that you'd speak to us. Father, I pray that you give me utterance, Lord, to communicate your truth through this passage. God, I pray that I wouldn't fill this message with a my own thoughts and ideas, but seek to clearly communicate what you say here. God, I pray that it would land upon us with the power that it ought to, because it's your word, the authority that it ought to. God, I pray you'd apply it to our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would live under, humbly live under this text when we leave this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Through these verses, God wants to address you about paying taxes. He wants to address you about speed law, speed limit laws. I hear someone say, "Uh uh-oh. He wants to address you about speaking and calling the president demeaning names. 
He wants to speak to us about respecting police officers. Not just when you've been pulled over by one. Not just outwardly. He wants to speak to us about voting. And most importantly, he wants to address us about how to do all of these things in a God-centered way. He wants to address each one of us about how to live as God-centered Christians in a fallen world with fallen governments and fallen authorities. So I think this is full and overflowing with relevance for us. We're going to look mainly, like I said, at verses 13 to 17. And the main command is this. Two words, or another translation, one word. Be subject. Or, New American Standard Bible simply says this, submit. Now when I say that, how does that land on you? Submit. Submit. Submit or be subject to every human institution, whether to the Emperor Supreme in Peter's day or to governors as sent by him to execute his commands and decrees. Be subject or submit to every human institution. Oftentimes there is something that rises up within us. And it happens very early on, doesn't it? When we are being commanded to submit. Notice it is not a suggestion. Peter is not suggesting that life would go better for us and we would get along better in life if we submitted, but he is commanding us. When we hear, be subject or be submissive, something oftentimes rises up within us. It certainly does in children. And whenever, invariably, whenever whenever, uh, husbands and wives are talked about, this idea, it's like like preachers have to say, okay, women, I'm going to talk to you about something. Submission. Right? There's, it's because there's something in our culture, something in our fallen nature that rises up against that and bucks against it. We should note that Peter knew well that there's a time for civil disobedience, that we don't just blindly obey every single dictate and thing we're told. For it was Peter who, when commanded not to preach Christ anymore under the threat of severe punishment... He said, we must obey God rather than men. But the same Peter here doesn't say anything about civil disobedience. He he talks to us about our default disposition as Christians. And it's one of submission or obedience or subjection or placing ourselves under. Christians are not anarchists. Amen? Christian, and Christians are also not slaves of the state. Rather, followers of Jesus ought to be the best citizens of any given nation or state or city. And here's why. Because their primary allegiance is not to 
the nation and state and city or the leaders or the policies and laws, but to God. Our submission to every human authority should be very much with God in mind and God at the center. And so, be subject is the command. Submit is the command. The most important thing our text does is it puts our life as citizens in America, as citizens of Iowa, as citizens of Ankeny, and all of our political activity that we engage in, which is certainly different than the people that Peter's writing to would have engaged in. We have much more ability to actually engage in the, acti- in the, in the political process. But the most important thing is that it puts all of these things in relation to God. All of these things in relation to God. Not in isolation, not in a vacuum. We are not Christian, we are not Republicans or Democrats in a vacuum and then we're Christians on Sunday and we go through our day, all of these different compartments in life. No, he wants all of these things and directs all of these things to be in relation to God. Peter wants to direct our attention to God. He says, submit to every human institution and then he makes a beeline to direct our attention to God. Over and over and over again. So that's what I want to look at today. Um, I want to to point out four ways that he does this. And at the end, I want to spend a little time for, okay, since these are true, how do I I engage in social life and even in the political activity in light of this? Or how do I live underneath a fallen government in light of this? First, Peter reminds us of our Godward citizenship. Verse 11, Peter reminds us of this. He says, submit to governing authorities, acknowledging you are a pilgrim and an exile on earth. Verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And then he goes on and talks about abstaining from passions of the flesh and living such honorable lives. And then he goes right into be subject to governing authorities or human institutions. So I take Peter, I, I take Peter to be saying, as sojourners and exiles, be subject to human institutions. How fitting that Peter reminds these first century believers that they are sojourners. They are exiles. They are aliens. They are pilgrims. And this is what we are in this world. There's a lot of talk in our country right now about illegal aliens and refugees and um, you know, people that are here that are from another place and they probably want to go back there, but they're here for now for whatever reason. And it ought to remind us of what we are in this world. At the very beginning of the letter, Peter, addre- he, he's, he says, this is who I'm addressing. Elect or chosen exiles. If you look at the front of your bulletin, that's what Peter, First Peter is all about. Is Peter is talking to elect exiles. How do we live in this world as chosen people of God 
and exiles in the world. So submit to governing authorities, acknowledging that you are a pilgrim, you are an exile. To acknowledge means to say the same thing that God says. God says we are. And so we ought to say that we are, and we ought to live as though we are. I love what John Bunyan writes at the beginning of his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. He says, how natural that every man's life should be called by its proper name, a pilgrimage. Our life is a pilgrimage. How natural. Sometimes it feels unnatural though, doesn't it? We need to fight against the urge to live as though this were our permanent place. And there, is, there are lots of urges to do that. Do you see this life, your life now, this remaining 50, 60, 30 years of your life as a pilgrimage, a journey to your final destination, the place that you're not at yet? Like the ancient Jewish pilgrims who would make their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover or like present day, I mean ancient and present day Muslims who make their yearly pilgrimage to Mecca. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are refugees. We are aliens. We are sojourners. Or the way Paul puts it, our true citizenship is in heaven. Our true citizenship is in heaven. We are not citizens of Ankeny first or Des Moines or Iowa or the United States. We are first citizens of heaven. Check out how Abraham lived in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham says by faith, He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and and builder is God. Are you looking forward to that? Are you? That's that's the way a pilgrim lives, looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. Verse thirteen, it talks about lot of, of, of Hebrews eleven talks about lots of saints, and it says all of these saints died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what we are. We are strangers. We are exiles. These these saints in Hebrews 11, they acknowledged this. They, They confessed this. They filled their minds with thoughts of this. I mean, they had plenty in their life to remind them of this as well, which makes it sometimes harder for us. The difficulties and trials of life that were so fiery and so on top of them, the pressures. But they confess this, they acknowledge this, and we ought to do the same. I can't speak for you because I can't look into your heart. I know for me, I fear that I am far too at home here. Russell Moore said, said recently, we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. And I would just add to that, 
we are able to be the best citizens of our country submitting to governing authorities when we realize our truest citizenship is in heaven. So let me ask you, I guess I've asked this before, is this in your thinking and in your affections, your feeling, that you are a pilgrim on your way to a heavenly city? It will affect the way that you live now. It will affect the way that you live in subjection or in submission even to the governing authorities that we live under now. Let's acknowledge this. We are pilgrims. We are on a pilgrimage. Our citizenship is in heaven. Next, what Peter does is he turns our attention from our citizenship being in heaven or our pilgrimage directly to our Godward motivation. Verse 13. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to me, just like he was speaking to his initial readers of, his, of this letter. He says, you submit to governing authorities for the Lord's sake. Isn't that what verse 13 says? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme. Remember who the emperor was. It was Nero. Nero was not a friend of Christians. Under Nero's tyrannical reign, heavy, hot persecution came upon the church probably happening, either happening or about to happen as Peter's writing this letter. Submit for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. This is huge. This is gigantic. This is massive. If we miss this, we miss the most important thing here in this passage. Peter directs us to the highest Christian motivation in all things. And I think when Peter says, for the Lord's sake, I think it means at least two things. That we submit to governing authorities as unto the Lord. Think of Colossians 3.23 when when Paul says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord and not unto men, or for the Lord and not for men. I also think it means that we do it, that whatever we do, if we do it for the Lord's sake, we do it for his glory and for his honor and for his fame. Again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do all that you do, whether whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Listen, Christian submission is not based on a feeling. You don't do it for your own sake. Christian submission is not even because the government has the power to coerce you to submit. And they do. But it is first and foremost for the Lord's sake. There is this kind of submission to human institutions that is not for the Lord's sake, and Peter has no interest in that whatsoever. John Piper says there's a kind of submission to human institutions that may appear to be Christian on the outside, but it's radically different. 
we are to be subject to human governments, not for their sake or for our sake, but primarily for the Lord's sake. I want everyone to get this, for the Lord's sake. Living for the glory of God is not pie in the sky. It's not some Christian mantra we just tack onto things. This is our highest calling. Remember what Reed said last week about living such lives that outsiders, outsiders of the church, unbelievers would see and give glory to God. Jesus spoke of that in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's important to note that our subjection to human authorities is without respect to whether or not the authorities are godly. Think about this with me. Subjection for the sake of whoever happens to be the authority is not a very strong motivation, is it? Subjection for the sake of whoever happens to be in power is not a very strong motivation. I'm good today, but tomorrow I might not be. I like who's in office now, but who knows, in two years or four years, I may not. We may like particular laws and leaders this year and may not next year, but we are commanded to submit based on a higher commitment and a higher allegiance. It's for the Lord's sake. It is for him. We are called to do it for his glory as unto him and in order to please our Lord and our God. Again, remember, Peter's not playing games here. He's speaking to Christians who are under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire in the fires of persecution. He knows exactly, he knows either what they're going through or what they will go through. He describes it in two chapters in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, as the fiery trial. So we are to act and live in submission, recognizing the Lord's supreme authority over our lives. We should be able to look at the president through the television. We should be able to look at police officer right in the eyes who may even be pulling us over for speeding. We should be able to look every human authority in the eyes and say, I, maybe not say this, but know this in our heart, I am submitting I am subject to you. You probably wouldn't want to say this to them. Not for your sake, but for the Lord's sake. Remember the Lord Jesus standing before Pilate in John chapter 19. I love what Jesus says there. And this gives me such comfort that no matter where we stand, no matter who is governing. This gives me comfort. Jesus said this to Pilate. He said, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. 
mean, imagine the confidence when we know this. We can submit for the Lord's sake. Why? Because the, the only reason they have authority over us is because it's been granted from our good and loving and gracious Father in heaven for his own purposes and glory. Next, Peter points us to the paradox of submission. So we've seen that our submission is based on us having a citizenship in heaven. And we see that the motivation of our submission is for the Lord's sake. And then we also see this, this strange paradox in submission. We are free and yet not free. In one sense, we are the freest people on earth. And yet, in another sense, we are slaves. In a good sense. Verse 16, you are to submit to governing authorities as free servants of God. As free servants of God. Verse 16, live as free people. Doesn't that seem freeing? Live as free people. You are free in Christ. Totally and completely free. That's not all he says, though. Not using your freedom as a cover-up or a cloak for evil, but living as servants of God. Literally, living as slaves of God. You are live as free people. Not to do evil, but to live as a slave of God. You are free, men and women, in Christ. Not free from God, however. Right? Not free in an absolute sense, but free as servants of God. In one sense, we are free. We are free from sin. We are free from, the, from sin's con- condemning power. We are free from the curses of the law. We, are, we have free access through Christ to God. This is to be truly free. We have rights because of Jesus and privileges to all that is in God's house because we are his children. We are free. But Peter says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up to do evil. In other words, you can't say, I am free in Christ to decide which laws I will obey because I'm under a higher law. It doesn't work that way. I am free in Christ. I'm not sure I like this law. So I'm free in Christ to, to just disregard that. No. Don't use your freedom as a cloak to do evil, but rather to serve God. You are free in order to be a radical servant of God. You are free in order to be a slave of God. I I fear that sometimes the way people use freedom in Christ, they mean freedom to disobey God or freedom to disregard his commands or to kind of pick and choose which which ones will be adhered to. No, that's not the freedom Peter talks about. In fact, that is, that's further enslavement to our own sinful desires. We are free in Christ to be 
a servant of God. I love this play on words. Peter says, you are free from what once enslaved you, so live as a slave of another master of God. And he's a gracious master. He's a loving master. He gives us all that we need and then some. His grace is lavished upon us. But there is another sense in which we are free that I think might be more directly on Peter's mind in these verses. Just a few verses earlier from our text this morning in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter says, you are, because of Christ's work, you are a people for his own possession. Verse 10 says, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Because we belong to God, we do not belong to the state. I'm going to say that again. Because you belong to God, you do not belong to the state. You don't belong to the government, no matter how patriotic you are, or no matter how overbearing a government may get. You are free because you belong to God. The Chinese Christian who's been in prison for 20 years and has no prospects of getting out is free because he belongs to God. He is free from the state in the truest and realest, most real sense. Because you belong to God, because you are his choice possession, You are free from everyone else. Not to do what you want, but to do the will of God. So you are called to a voluntary subjection to authorities because of our high position as slaves of God. And it is a high position to be a servant of God. We don't move on from being a servant of God. We don't move from being a servant to son. We are servants, we're sons, both and. And it's good. God is good. Martin Luther, in honor of Reformation Day tomorrow, I wanted to share a quote from him. He presents this paradox for us in a helpful and pithy way in his book, The Freedom of a Christian. He says, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. The key is God, of course. The key is God who frees us through Christ from all human institutions and purchases us for himself and then sends us to live under the governing authorities for his sake, for his glory, for his honor, and as unto him. So submit to governing authorities as free servants of God or free 
slaves of God. Finally, Peter tells us our submission should be done in the fear of God. You might say this is the, this is the affection of submission, a Godward affection of submission to governing authorities. Verse 17 simply says, fear God. Fear God. I say, fear God? I thought that once we become Christians, all fear is removed. Right? John Newton's amazing grace was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. I thought they're relieved now. They're gone. Well, certainly there is a fear that the gospel deals with and removes and relieves. And there is a fear that the gospel produces in the life of new creatures in Christ. Let me rely upon one of my dead heroes, Charles Spurgeon, to help us understand this. He says, there is a fear which perfect love casts out because it has torment. That is the slavish fear which trembles before God as a criminal trembles before the judge. The fear which mistrusts, suspects, and has no confidence in God. The fear which therefore keeps us away from God and causes us to dread even the thought of drawing near to God. The gospel, of course, deals with that fear, right? Jesus suffered and died. He cried out, it is finished. The veil was torn. The way before the Father has been opened through Christ's gracious work. But Spurgeon continues and he says, Dear friends, there is another fear which ought to be cultivated. Cultivated, like a farmer would cultivate a field. That's my parenthesis in there, okay? Ought to be cultivated. The reverential fear which the holy angels feel when they worship God and behold his glory. The gracious fear which makes them veil their faces with their wings as they adore the majesty on high. There is also the loving fear which every true right-hearted child has towards his father. A fear of grieving so tender a parent. A proper feeling of dread which makes it watch its every footstep, lest in the slightest degree it should deviate from the path of absolute obedience. May God graciously grant us much of this kind of fear. To which I say, Amen, Lord. Grant me much of this kind of fear. Oh, may God grant us much of it. We have been adopted into God's family through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord. God is our tender, merciful, loving Father. But may we fear bringing reproach upon his name. May we fear bringing displeasure to our Father in heaven by a cavalier attitude toward civil authorities. 
I remember a friend long ago, he hated wearing seatbelts. <coughs> he hated wearing seatbelts. He says, I refuse to wear seatbelts. I remember saying, okay, the law is to wear a seatbelt. He said, I know. He had such a cavalier attitude. I mean, he, he, would, he said if he got pulled over for a seatbelt, which happened, he'd get, it, he'd, put his, he'd get a ticket, he'd put a seatbelt on. Once the police drove away, he'd take it back off. That's a cavalier attitude toward governing authorities. What we need is a greater fear of the Lord. A greater reverence for his name. A greater fear of bringing displeasure to our Father with such a brazen, cavalier attitude. I don't know about you, but I certainly have had an attitude like that at different times, and I grieve over it. In Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about the universal sinfulness of mankind. And in verses 10 to 18, he just gives this list of um, all are under sin. There is not one righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks for God. Goes through this list one thing after another. We just are all laid bare before God and said, okay, I need a savior. And at the end, it says this. As if to sum it all up, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No true fear of God before their eyes. This kind of fear, well, that Peter talks about and that Spurgeon explained for us, it's, it's something that used to describe the saints in, old, in, in the old days. Maybe some places still today. I don't hear it too often. She was a God-fearing woman. He was a good, God-fearing man. And for good reason. We are told over and over again about the blessing of those who fear the Lord. The blessing and the grace. The grace upon the person who who truly fears the Lord. And the blessing that comes to them. It's all over. It's all through the Bible. It's really not, not, not just Old Testament, old new. Just to give you a sampling, Proverbs chapter 3 says this, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So to fear the Lord is to turn from evil. It's to turn away from it. Proverbs 8 verse 13 says, fear the, Lord, to, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 14.26 and 27 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Verse 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Wow. 
We've never thought of the fear of the Lord in such terms, have we? It's a fountain of life. And Proverbs fifteen sixteen, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is just a little. If you, don't have a bank, if you don't have a big bank account, but you have the fear of the Lord, it's better than to have great riches without this grace of fearing the Lord. This isn't just an Old Testament theme. This is not just an Old Testament theme. In Acts chapter 9, the early church was described in a number of different places that they feared the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, or, uh, let's see, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. May we be God-fearing men and women and raise God-fearing children so that we fear our fears in the right direction, right? It's vertical and it's not horizontal. Let's cultivate this fear. For when we fear God, when we truly have this fear of God, we don't need to fear anything or anyone else. Whether it be a government, a particular leader, or a particular law. Matthew 10, Jesus just very succinctly put it this way. Well, I'm going to put it succinctly. He says, don't fear those who can only kill your body. That's all they can do to you. You're like, wait a second, that's quite a bit. He says, rather fear him who after he kills your body can throw you in hell. Okay, that makes sense. Right? Don't fear those who can only kill your body. Rather fear the one who has power to both take your life and throw you into hell forever. Okay. And when you fear God, you don't have to fear anybody else or anything else. Okay, so how do we, how do, how do I engage socially, politically? How do I, how do I faithfully live under governing authorities? I do want to leave you with just four ways or four things that I want you to carry out of here this morning, application, you might say, of this text. The first is, very simply, I'm just taking Peter's words here, honor everyone. Now, the everyone here I think Peter's talking about is everyone in authority. There's certainly a sense where we should honor every person as an image bearer of God, but the context here is the emperor, the governors that he sends to carry out his dictates. So we are to honor everyone in human institutions and human authority. Verse 17 very simply says, honor everyone. Verse 15, though, I think helps give, flesh this out for us a little bit. It says, 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So honor everyone by doing good. This idea of doing good is all throughout the book of 1 Peter. It's like, how do exiles live in a fallen world? They do lots of good. They don't stay to themselves. They are looking for opportunities to do good. Chapter 2, verse 20. Peter says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So doing good, even when you suffer for it. Chapter 3, verse 6, talking about wives submitting to their husbands, using the example of Sarah, says as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is a constant theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. Exiles, citizens of heaven living on planet earth are looking for ways to do good. And so we should not be a minimalist here, okay? We shouldn't put a fish bumper sticker on our car and drive the speed limit. That's great, okay, do that. But Peter, I think, is saying, let's go beyond that. Let's look for ways to bless and honor and do good to those who are in authority. What does it look like to honor everyone? What does it look like to do good. Well, what, what if, what if every time you saw a police officer at a coffee shop, you bought their coffee and told them, thank you for your service to our community. Or you saw them at a cafe and you said, hey, can I buy, can I buy your lunch today? I, I just so appreciate all that you do in this community to bless and protect and serve us. Is that honoring? Blank stares. Is that doing good? I think so. I think it is. We should be looking for ways to be a blessing to the authorities in our city and in our state and as we have opportunities, certainly, at a federal level. Let's take John Wesley's lead here on this when he said, Christian, okay, he's talking to us, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. So as long as you live on planet Earth and you are living under authorities, okay, human authorities, human institutions, we should be looking to do good like this. And what does Peter say? This kind of doing good. Listen, we should pay our taxes. Okay, that's good. Paying taxes, obeying speed limit laws, that's, a, that's the minimum. When we do good like this, we can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people when they see Christians 
living in a certain kind of way out in public, doing good. It will close the mouths of those who say Christians are haters or that Christians don't care about life in this world or that Christians have a hard time just living more practically, practically blessing people that just have their heads in the sky, in the clouds, thinking about heaven someday. It'll put to silence those kinds of comments, which may or may not be true anyways. Number two, I'm stepping out on a limb here, okay? Vote with God in mind. Vote with God in mind. Remember the words of Jesus to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my people would be fighting. They'd be taking up swords and stopping this nonsense. Get informed about the candidates, about the issues, about, at least here in Iowa, the the local or state judges. Get informed about ballot initiatives and then vote. But I want you to vote with God in mind. I want you to vote as a citizen of heaven first and a citizen of the United States, second, and far behind. I want you to vote, first and foremost, for the Lord's sake, and not for your own sake, or for the sake of a party, or for the sake of country, or state, or candidate, or issue primarily, but first and foremost, for the Lord's sake. I want you to vote as a slave of God, purchased by God as his own choice possession and not as a slave of the state and its institutions or a political party or candidates or a government and its elections. And I want you to vote fearing God and not fearing the government and not fearing anything that may happen in the future. Shouldn't we vote that way? Now, here's the deal. We might vote differently. But we should vote this way. We should vote like Christians. With a Christian worldview. With our minds transformed by God. With our thoughts and minds fixed on God. Third, love Christians. Love the brothers and sisters. That's what Peter says here. He says, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Band together with your Christian brothers and sisters as a collective witness to the world that our hope is not in this world. Now imagine for, those, for the Christians first hearing this, the, the Christians Peter's writing to, this would have had a special implication for them. 
when they are feeling the, the fires of hot persecution, to band together with brothers and sisters is, was necessary. They needed that. And we don't need it any less than they do, though sometimes we don't think we need it. Love the brotherhood. We should love all people. We should love every person we come across. We should love unbelievers, for sure. We should love everyone as our neighbor. But the New Testament, over and over and over and over and over, with every single author, says there should be a special love for the brothers, for believers, for those who are part of the family of God, saved by the blood of Jesus. We may yet enter a time when it will be increasingly relevant for us to band together as trials and fiery, perhaps persecution, come our way too. I'm not a doomsday guy, okay? I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet or anything like that, okay? I'm just, it's not hard to see the possibility. And I want to just even very quickly apply this to voting. This election cycle has been particularly divisive. If you vote for so-and-so, you are a sellout. And if you don't vote for so-and-so, you will be to blame for what happens. Love the brothers. Love the brothers. Vote like Christians and love the brothers. Finally, pray. First Timothy, Paul urges all people everywhere to lift up holy hands and to pray for those who are in positions of authority. And we should be a praying people. And I want to I urge you with something in particular in mind. It, it's not, we can look at what's going on outside the church, outside the four walls of this building or the church in general, and say, man, I pray that God has mercy on them. And we should pray that way. We should pray for our leaders. But I also want to ask you to pray for the church, that God would have mercy on us that God would come and visit his church in a powerful way. Regardless of what happens in the future, regardless of the, the increased or diminishing freedoms that we may have in this country, that God would come and visit us with power. Isn't that what we want more than anything else? I think it is. In the heart of hearts, that's what we want more than anything, is for a visitation from God. Let's pray. Father, that's what we desire. God, help us to live like Christians in a fallen world under fallen, corrupt governments, imperfect governments. God, we cry out to you in this time, Lord, of our, in our nation, Lord, in our, where 
we, we need you, God. We need you. We, your people, need you, God. We need you to visit us, God. We need you to pour out your spirit upon your church, to cleanse your church, God, to purify your church, Lord. Like, like you are the, the vine dresser, Father. Jesus, you're the vine. We are branches. And Father, you're the vine dresser who prunes the vine, the branches off the vine. We, we need you to do this, this work in and among us as your people. God, I pray for it. God, I ask for it. I join with my brothers and sisters here. God, we long for it here at Real Life Church, but God, just generally in your church, God, here in Ankeny, here in Iowa, here in the United States. God, have your way. God, I pray that we would live like Christians because that's what we are. We are Christians. That we would live for your sake. We would fear you. We would know, we would acknowledge that we are pilgrims here. And that we would be the freest of all and yet free to be a slave of yours for the good of others and for your glory. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. May the Lord bless you today.